I'm Lorraine Henry and I'm a Cultural and Historical Studies lecturer at London College of Fashion and I'm also a PhD researcher. Hi, I'm Harris Elliott. I'm a creative director. I curate a number of exhibitions and work extensively throughout the art, music and fashion arenas. I would define black street style as something that exists externally. Um, The name obviously depicts where you imagine to see or experience black street style or the exponents of that. But black street style is what takes place in the clubs, what takes place in the markets, in the churches, in the raves, in the parks. It's where black individuals or groups of friends or communities um, express themselves by a means which has some form of link to their culture, their community, and maybe their history, or just how they happen to be feeling or whatever recent music they might have been listening to. I think Black Street Style kind of um, encapsulates all of that, but I think a lot of people think about it as um, the way a look is put together. You know, how you are seen, not just out on the street, some of these areas, such as church and the events that might happen within black communities aren't necessarily privy to everybody. But the, the style seen on the streets, it made me question whether we're talking about that shorthand, which is very limited, that stereotype where you might think of, say, somebody in trainers and track pants and, and hoodies, and, and we have to kind of put it out there because sometimes that's what people mean by street style, or they're thinking hip-hop musicians. I'm just saying that there might be many ways to define it and some of them are not necessarily the way that we might define it. Mm, Completely. That's why I perhaps use the church or the rave to polar opposite spaces in one sense, but not in others. The sense that when I say those those kind of spaces, it's, it's style that is lived and experienced outside of your house as opposed to internal which obviously by the term of it being street and for my perception and for my life personally it's about the attitude that goes with it so it's not just about realistically what you wear but it's about how you wear it so anyone can be adopting similar cultural associations or references or accoutrements or jackets or dresses that might resonate or start from within black cultures and black communities, but it's the attitude and the politics often that goes with the clothes that you happen to be wearing. So it's how you wear your clothes as opposed to what you're wearing. Absolutely. Because if you think about street style and you think about it being, um, in some cases, thought about as casual wear, casual wear could be anything. It doesn't have to be brand names. It doesn't have to be, um, well, in some cases, it might have to be specific colours, depending on what message you're trying to put across. But it could be that it's really about how you wear it, which is what you were saying. And it's whether your collar is pointing in a particular direction, it's the type of hat you're wearing, it's how you've worn the hat, not just... So you could actually dress two people in exactly the same clothes and one would look like streetwear and one wouldn't or one would look stylish and one wouldn't yeah. and it's just literally the diff those differences in those micro details mm-hmm. which are expressed to maximum effect 
I guess the difference when you're dressing for church and when you're dressing for a club, I can imagine my mum thinking this through now, there's a very clear distinction. There are rules about dressing for church, how much flesh should be on show, what kind of colours you're wearing, what type of heels, if heels at all, makeup, whether there is makeup, how it's worn, length of the skirt. Yeah, there's definitely rules about how much cleavage is on show and what type of jewellery, and it all depends on how strict the church is. So, obviously, if you're going to a club, none of these rules apply. (laughs) None of these rules apply. So you have a different way of dressing, which might be more about the type of music that you're going to or the type of event or whether it's an event with family or whether it's an event with friends because the clothes might be different. Most likely they would be different mm. between whatever the scenario or situation is that you are going to be attending or taking part in in terms of how you carry yourself. And although some of these values and some of what you're saying I agree 100% with, but I think with the current generation, of, as in people in their teens, the early 20s, the way that they're expressing themselves now, be it, again, church or club, as just taking two particular um, types of um, place that one could coexist, um, those rules are starting to break. Not saying that there will be cleavage in the church, but there's a quite a famous musician in the states. I'm not going to talk about, but in terms of a record that he's just brought out, and in terms of what people within the black churches now, by that example, are wearing trainers and tracksuits through... But of old, that could never, ever, ever happen. You couldn't you couldn't leave your house and saying that you're going to church and thinking that you're going to be putting jeans or trainers on. But no. within the further emergence of streetwear, as in streetwear in terms of sportswear culture, which has been co-opted into or used regularly as as de rigueur as people's outfits, um, it seeped across the board. So then there's been a slight relaxing from what you perceive in terms of how people wish to express themselves in a faith kind of context. There are so many issues um, and so many things to discuss in that because if you think about um, streetwear, I pri- I'm primarily thinking about men. I'm, I know that it isn't just men, but for, for my way of thinking, I'm thinking streetwear tends to be more a male way of interacting with a male way of interacting with fashion so if i'm thinking of it as a male way of interacting with fashion then i find it quite interesting that 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 is seeping into churches in a way that's a good thing that means men are going to church but in another way it's it's kind of breaking down a lot of barriers isn't it i just think a lot of cultural barriers have globally in whichever community um, or and racially, I think a lot of those barriers have definitely been coming down. Be that good, be that progressive, be that different. I'm not here really here to say, I'm just saying that I'm aware that things aren't what they were when I was growing up a few decades ago. Are you saying that you think that um, brands are now influencing the way people look in church even? I'd say that's probably within some people there's been an element where that definitely takes place because people like to look good and a large point part of 
any of this is about how people wish to express themselves and in terms of your income in terms of how you spend your money is going to enhance what you how how you express yourself whether even in a modest way you could still be wearing big labels and and still be expressing yourself in that way it does make me think about conspicuous consumption though i mean the whole point of going to church maybe is not for it to be about conspicuous consumption but this kind of making of your identity using the brands i think politically as black people and that can wholeheartedly speak for black people as as my one voice clothes have always or very often been used or we have used clothes to be able to demark our territory so whether that be in church or be that on the front line where you're going to school and when I say clothes that could be how you wear your hair um, be that men and women so in terms of what you wear in whichever arena it is or whichever space I've always seen the clothing being a kind of armour in terms of how you use to gird yourself to deal with society so if that's even that's within church there's maybe a slightly more modest but still there's a flyness to it there's a sense of strength and confidence in the way it wouldn't be a subdued or a wallflower kind of way of being similarly if you're going to be out and about in hanging out with your friends or whether it's going to the park or going to a party, in terms of what you wear is really important. And I say political in that sense that because society has so many preconceptions and confines and stereotypes and judgments about who you are, sometimes what you wear is the means in which you need to defend and define your territory and defend who you are and your community and your identity. Absolutely. Clothes are political. You know, they're definitely about identity, and hair's definitely political. A hundred percent. A hundred percent political. I guess when I think about all of the different styles of, not just of hair, of clothes, and I think of all the different types of hairstyles that would go with it, there's certainly precedent, really, isn't there, for clothing pushing forward the different hairstyles, making them popular, making them cool, um, making them acceptable, and also challenging people's stereotypes. So I think that that's quite interesting. And the two are inextricably linked in terms of your hair and what you wear and the two go hand in hand and obviously you can't have one without the other and so however it is that you choose to groom or not but how you express yourself from a hair point of view that's the defining point that you how you engage with someone if someone's going to have some form of verbal interaction with you they're looking at your face and your hair is part of that and even if that means that your hair is underneath a underneath a hat a beret a tam a beanie whatever that will be yeah and your hair and how people perceive that headspace and how they interact with you and also how they judge you your hair is integral to all of that Mm. and in some ways even more so than whatever else you're wearing because so much can be defined by so many people making judgments about you because of what they see your hair to be. And I see that myself. The few times when my locks are out, the, the difference that how people will approach you or not or respond to you. And it's really silly, but my hair's normally covered and then clearly it's covering something, but people don't always gauge that. So it's how people, how your hair and what that means and the strength that that has 
in either supporting who you are in your look. But you, again, if you're wearing a suit and you've got your hair wrapped or you're wearing a suit and your hair's out, the way that you're, you navigate your space on a daily basis is going to be two different, two different operatives. And that's the same outfit. But just two different hairstyles, yeah. two different hair options. But that makes so much difference in terms of how you communicate with people or how others communicate with you just on your hairstyle and whether your hair is treated and straightened or curled or you've got a weave or you've, however that's done, again, that adds into the mix. So in terms of style and in terms of how we express ourselves before we even put on a string vest or a dress or a pair of trainers or high heels or whatever it would be, it starts with what we're, how we're choosing to express from the neck upwards before you put on a single designer label. It's definitely as much as in terms of style and it often gets it's put into its own separate box or way that you look at things, but you can't take um, how we carry our hair or what goes upon our crown and in terms of what we wear it's just the the two are inextricably linked a large part of history around black hair goes back to slavery and how slaves were mistreated it's not treated or not treated it was the mistreating of slaves and that heinous um, passage and then still in that post-colonial kind of mind state in terms of how predominantly as women to have Afro hair, it would always be seen as a negative, so therefore would be encouraged by, um, not even encouraged, enforced by, as a status quo, that you need to straighten your hair because it is perceived as more European, it's perceived as more manageable, and then therefore you might be more acceptable in order to be able to be in the workplace because it forms as a bit of a, a taboo within larger white society. and. Yes, it's seemingly getting lesser, but it's still very much a taboo. And so there's often a very big debate where, in a discussion recently where someone was like claiming that a black guy was claiming, yeah, but people shouldn't straighten their hair and this, that and the other. And whatever my thoughts are about it, the fact is that a lot of it's about survival and whether I agree with it or not on those choices. But do you get a job or do you not get a job? And some people will say, well, your identity is more important than that job. But then if it's a case of feeding your family or paying your mortgage or your rent, if that doesn't mean that you're any less pro-black culture or that statement because your hair is a certain way, but if it's systematically has gone through decade after decade and century after century that you're perceived as an other, so unless your names are changed, so you, if you come from... Africa, you have a, whether it's a Western or an Anglo-Saxon or a biblical name, in order to be accepted within white Western society, the hair was the next thing after your name that actually your hair doesn't fit. So therefore, or for me growing up, it was that point, well, if my my pigment's going to be, or my melanin's going to be a point of difference that's going to cause lack of acceptance, then changing my hair is not really going to make any more difference it actually did but at the same time you're kind of like if you if I'm going to be public enemy number one then let me be public enemy number one and be uncompromising in the way that I'm going to carry myself I guess the thing about 
every dominant ideology is it gets you get your peers to police you in a way don't you so other black people would be policing me about my hair and my look and my clothes and that's okay well it's not okay but it was okay at the it time was acceptable. Because, accepted. yeah it was accepted at the time but I guess I guess the questions about if we're looking at black street style and we're looking at all the different style options we have now that's where fashion really comes into its own because we've lived through zoot suits and we've lived through hip-hop culture I mean the first waves of yeah. hip-hop culture and all of those different outfits and we can now you and I can now stand and we can choose we can choose to take from any of those historical passion-filled vibrant times times we can pick from those or we can kind of bricolage them together and create something of our own so we get to do that which is great which is links back to clothing in that way for me which was so important about hip-hop or also about reggae culture or jamaican culture in general that it's very much about the remix and the reinvention and it's not about repeating yes so so very much and the DNA within black style or street style in that sense is that actually growing up in the 80s and 90s, less so than I'm seeing now, but I'm older, so maybe I'm seeing it through different through a different lens. But that point that if you're going out, even on a day-to-day basis, not even going out for the night, I don't want to look like my friends. And my mum brought me up to be an individual. So if you've got a certain jacket... I want my jacket to be slightly different. Maybe I might perceive better, but it's definitely got to be different and it's got to stand out from what you're wearing. And so in, that, in terms of that sense of street style, it's that point where that expression of attitude is about individual expression, even if it's, there's a common commonality in terms of whoever it is that I'm going to be rolling with. Yeah, it's about, it's about having a look when you, when you appear yeah. As a as a group, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I've had it with girlfriends and we kind of look at each other and we go, uh-uh, that jacket belongs with that skirt and we kind of swap over. And we look at the earrings and we go, no, you need something longer, bigger, whatever it is. But then you kind of have the, the difference between everybody, but you have this kind of cohesive look, which is which is interesting. What's the other... That's another aspect of community. Yeah. So therefore it's not... And... And it's not that I live in, well, only within black circles. I've been brought up in Britain. So it's maybe you're not saying that you wouldn't have it with your white peers and mates and so forth. But the communication that we have growing up in that way within the black community is much more tactile and and involved mm-hmm. in terms of so that kind of sharing of details. Not saying you wouldn't have that with your other peers, but it's very much it's almost like a community effort. Yeah, there's an expectation that um, the conversation might be, seriously, you let me go out like that? Yeah. Why didn't you say? How dare you? Yeah, Yeah, how dare you? You know, it's your responsibility to make sure I look good when we go out. So if there's something not quite right when I turn round, then between us, we sort that out. Coincidentally, today, I was um, walking through Camden first thing this morning and there used to be a store called Four Star General and it was opposite Camden Station and through the late 80s into most of the 90s, if my memory serves me correct, Four Star General was a store which would import a lot of 
American clothing from in within the hip hop vein and for for hip hop culture. And there was a point within the late 80s where you had bands like Public Enemy and Brand Nubian and Karis One and Boogie Down Productions. And so much of what was coming out was about pan-Africanism and in terms of how we as a people need to find out some of our identity and understanding in us as coming from Africa originally. And so in terms of the visuals, cues that would come out through the clothing, and that was one of the stores that you'd go to. And it's funny, this morning I ended up, I couldn't find an image of the store, but I Googled and I found a picture of um, this guy with these Kazal glasses, which are the big square glasses, which reminiscent from the 80s. He had this leather hat, very much, I can't remember what they're called, but it's this leather hat, like a fez type shape, but straight up and it's black leather. And on the front, it had this round leather circle in the, mid- the middle was a, what looks like a resin um, symbol of Africa. So red, but then colored red, black and green. And so back in the late 80s, when a lot of those stars were coming through, there were people like Heavy D and the Boys, Salt and Pepper, and Moni Love, and they started getting into wearing Kente African prints. I went on a bit of a pilgrimage from South London to North London to find the one and only store that was there in Finsbury Park that would have these leather hats because that was the point where politics were coming into the music I was listening to. It wasn't just pop, but hip hop was starting to define how I, would, how, how I thought about what I would eat what I would wear, who I needed to be or how I needed to understand myself because this information wasn't coming from schools necessarily. So things like those hats, um, and I had one which had a kente print on it with a black leather trim around it and a leather leather crown. So in terms of the kind of clothes that within hip-hop throughout those periods would always start to define how we would look. Also there were tracksuits by a brand called Troop and a lot of the people like Dapper Dan, who is now very synonymous with with Gucci, but he was always the couturier for the hip-hop community from the Bronx. And so taking reference from Italian brands, but doing it in a Dapper Dan way, which would be suitable for the, suitable for the hip-hop community, essentially, and other black people who may not have been part of hip-hop, but appreciated the style. So the little details and the kind of clothes that you wore were really integral and really important. So that was my first, that I remember, clothing pilgrimage where I had to go on an expedition to go and find a specific hat. And I brought it back to South London and people would laugh at me because it wasn't, yeah, I was listening to certain kinds of music, but everybody around you in South East London is not wearing these hats. The people that you listen to might be wearing them, but even then that might only be on the record sleeve or maybe it is in Brooklyn and the Bronx, but clothing and the things that you would wear that associate you either to the culture or to the music, I've always been really integral to the way you address as communities or as families or as, as quite tribal. Moving 30 years later to a project that I created with a good friend of mine, Dean Chalkley, filmmaker and photographer, we created a project called Return of the Rude Boy. And Return of the term Rude Boy, there's a lot of... Um, misunderstandings about that word and what that word really means or where it where and how it came from it came from Jamaica in the late 1950s and the basic breakdown of the word really means Jamaican bad man that's what rude boy means but as a visual it started off with 
the men in the 50s into the 60s who were often wearing tonic suits, but it was quite sharp in terms of the tailoring and that was really important. And then that movement had various reincarnations. So back tail end of the late 70s, early 80s with the two-tone movement where Jamaicans who had been really embedded en masse into Western society um, and how their styles had been co-opted and shared within white working class communities from mods to skinheads and then to punks. The Rude Boy got another resurgence in the late 70s and early 80s. But then 80s into the 90s, as hip-hop came through, Rude Boy would quite often be referencing Jamaican youth or it would be hip-hop youth who were wearing their trousers a certain way. So we would be pin-rolling our trousers, which would mean the bottom cuff of your trouser would be folded in on itself and then turned over two times, which would then compress and bring your the cuff of your trouser in closer to your ankle. So you then would see your sock and then you'd been wearing socks. So it would have been a Burlington sock. So there were always certain things that you'd have to wear. So it would be the diamond Burlington socks. Often the brands you'd be wearing would be Chippy, um, Chevignon, Tonsaton, a lot of French brands that would be coming through. You'd be wearing your Adidas torsions. Then that was a time when Nike Air Max started to come through. So then that was the next brand of trainer that would be filtering in through that. And so Rude Boy, which as a term now could even be referenced as a roadman, would be the, the modern way that you would describe what a Rude Boy would be. But essentially it is comes from Jamaican Badman. And so the project that we did, which we exhibited in 2014 at Somerset House, was taking a cue from a number of people that we were observing that were referencing more the original incarnation of what it meant to be a rude boy. So therefore, there a lot more tailoring would be involved as opposed to sportswear co-opted into your outfits. Not saying that you couldn't, but the mainstay you wouldn't be wearing head to toe in terms of sportswear. Um, the cuts would be sharper, the, tail- the tailoring would be involved. Again, it is that form of defiance in the way that you would express yourself. A lot of people liken the project to the sappers who originate from the Congo but that's a very different aesthetic and a very different look. The sappers on, in the way that they express themselves is very much about what other people, how they perceive you and you're showing your wealth or your level of excess and your colours and all of your accoutrements or in terms of your trying to impress people by it's your demeanour. It's a performance, A performance, yeah. yeah. Whereas as a rude boy, I don't really care what anybody else thinks about what I'm wearing. I need to look sharp, but I'm not doing it for your affirmation. I'm doing it for my own self-pride and dignity. And so there's a stark difference, and the suppose could maybe link a bit more to something that's a bit more dandy and a bit more fey and a bit lighter in that way, as you say, because it's about a performance. Whereas from a rude boy's state of mind or a state of expressing it's not about performing it might look amazing so it may look like a performance but I'm not I'm not doing I'm not being me for your appreciation I'm being me for myself it's low-key cool yeah 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 they're very laid back yeah or even if they're not laid back because even if all of the details are there there isn't necessarily the expressions of colour and flourishes in the way that you'd maybe see within a support I guess thinking about brands, if you're thinking about the brands that 
um, well, there are, I, I think of it in two ways. There are the brands that black people might wear as part of creating their style. Yeah. And then there are the brands that are using the style that black people are wearing to feed through from the other direction. So you've got the this theory, really, or this process of what's being worn on the street bubbling up to the fashion designers who are like elite. Yeah. So you've got the street meets elite almost. And then the fashion designers in all of the houses are, are then taking these ideas and they're turning them into something that's very high end, but still they're quite simple pieces, aren't they? Yeah. There aren't necessarily specific brands, but what's happening now is there's certain people who are able to influence the culture or fashion culture from within. So the obvious person would be someone like Virgil Abloh. And so as black people, but it's not just as black people, but you're able to then, yes, it's Louis Vuitton, but it's at the point now where brands are really into what Virgil is doing. So first came the brand that he did was Pyrex, which was Colt Street brand. Then from Pyrex, it then went to Off-White, and I might even have missed another one that he did in between, Mm. and then to Louis Vuitton. So it's in terms of the people that are involved now who've come up through the culture and are able to define their own ways through those bigger brands. So those bigger brands, have no longer would it just be pilfering or skimming around the edges, actually let's bite into the culture wholesale. So you have... Um, someone like Samuel Ross, you have brands like Telfar, you have pe- brands like Juro Olowu, you have Casey Hayford, there's tons of brands. And we're now reaching a time where there's a lot of black designers who yeah. are able to, who even though they influence so much of fashion culture anyway, they are now able to influence the high fashion culture with their own endemic kind of sensibilities. I guess you're going to get a a sense of authenticity, aren't you? Because before, if you've got white designers trying to reinterpret, that's the the challenge you get with um, cultural appropriation, isn't it? Where where a designer might be working with something that's outside of their culture and therefore can't be as sensitive to it as as they would be if they were within the culture. Still see that daily. It's amazing how prevalent it is, I think. It's incredulous. I'm like still gobsmacked that brands still do that. And it's. And they're big brands as well. I mean, you've got people like Disney falling foul of it. And. And And Prada and HM, and even recently Levi's did a project which they um, did a project on the Rockers, the Jamaican film Rockers. And instead of creating something new, they just did a carbon rehash of the exact film and as opposed to actually why not bring some people not just to be your eye candy in the image but actually bring some people from the culture into your design meetings and process so therefore you actually understand the thought process behind the culture as opposed to the end result of what the aesthetic is because it still only treats us as black people as actually you're we love your culture, but actually we still don't really know how we can work with you, so we still only treat you on a surface level because you're renowned for looking good, so therefore that's what we'll take out of you as opposed to any cultural or intellectual context that goes with it. And I would imagine that 
the more the more that there is a, a fusion between the white design houses and the black designers, the better they'll do. So theoretically, they should be pulling designers in. They should be pulling people in with the experience and the expertise and the know-how and the lived experience, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> Having lived the experience, you know that there is no way you would put that together with that. But people only see their, their bottom line in terms of their margins, and that's essentially what drives any of the decisions at any of the places, whether you look at Edward Enifel at Vogue. Edward was appointed not not as the token new black guy, it's because he's, he's, he's a powerful man within fashion. Yes. So he's able to increase Vogue and ailing Condé Nast is a big house, but magazine publishing is going up. Edward is able to bring um, increased revenue by him being at Vogue. So it's people understanding that actually we don't, only look good or have certain aesthetic actually if you work as you say within with the people from the culture actually your revenues are going to increase as well so it's in terms of but I still think the people at the top are quite often who make those decisions don't they don't, they don't fully get it they don't, they don't understand. understand but if they're thinking bottom line then they need to understand yeah, that really quickly I mean they're slowly in the sense well not even slowly a lot of a lot of the big houses and other big countries are moving into Africa to be able to start mining the resources and so forth in terms of how they're working so they're starting to understand that actually oh we're not it's not just the darker continent with um with flies on your face in terms of like live aid but actually there's money to be made here um there's resources here and there's actually culture which isn't only for black people it's something that global culture also buys into and so and culture is something that should be expressed and enjoyed and shared by all and it shouldn't be segregated and separated into these little boxes. 